This week has been packed with news, including some personal news for myself. If you are watching the video version of the show, you may notice that I'm in a different room and there's also not much behind me in terms of a set, and that's because, well, I moved. And more on that later. This week's episode is so jam-packed that I had to bump a few things just to fit it all in. Fedora announced the latest release of Fedora 33. There was a DMCA takedown on YouTube DL by the RIAA. And we have many updates on this as well. And a new Linux-powered smartphone has been announced called the Pro One X. And it's said to come with your choice of Lineage OS or Ubuntu Touch. AMD made two huge announcements this week with the Radeon RX 6000 series and that AMD is set to acquire Xilinx. Sci-Five announced a new development board called the Hi5 Unmatched, which is powered by the RISC-V architecture. And at long last, Snap packages are getting a speed boost, which will be very, thank very welcomed by a lot of people. There has been some confusion around the X server recently, and there are discussions of it, whether or not it's been abandoned, so we'll talk about that. Then we'll round out the show with another distro release, this time with NixOS with version 20.09. All that and much more coming up right now on your weekly source for Linux GNUs. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean and by Bitwarden. Welcome to episode ABC123 of This Week in Linux a weekly Linux news podcast, a part of the Destination Linux network. I'm Michael Tunnell, and if you're new to the show, this is the show that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take on the latest topics using my over 20 years experience as a Linux user. Before we get started this week, I just want to do a quick little bit of housekeeping. I've got quite a few things, and if you are watching the video version, you probably have noticed, especially since I said it in the intro, that I have moved. And there are a lot of facets and aspects of why this is going to be good for the show in terms of, like, you can't really tell right now because it looks pretty sparse behind me because I didn't really have that much time for the setup from the move to the actually get everything set to go. I did get all the essentials set up, but in terms of the majority of it, like the bookcase is completely empty because I didn't really have the time to do any prep for that. So it, there might be some issues in the audio or the video or something like that. I don't know because it's the first time I've actually done the show in this location and I haven't actually had the chance to do post-production checking yet. So if there are some issues, just let me know. But I think this is going to be really good for not only the show, but also the channel, because it'll allow me to make more content for the channel and much more frequently and in just a, you know, I don't know, more rapid pace, but also in a more like streamlined pace. So I'm super excited about that. And also something else I'm super excited about is the 200th episode of Destination Linux podcast. Now, it hasn't happened yet. And the reason I'm telling you about the 200th episode now is because we're going to be having a huge like fest festival of lights. I mean, not really, but it's going to be a festival of like celebration of the actual uh, episode when we record it. That is happening on Sunday, November 15th. And after that episode, we're also going to be doing a game fest, which will be the the Destination Linux Network Game Fest or the DLN Game Fest. I have a link in the show notes to find out all the details and information about the Game Fest and you know when you can when you can join, what games are going to be playing, and all that sort of stuff. There's just a ton of stuff we're going to be doing for this particular you know announcement 
or this particular episode of the 200th celebration. So be sure to join us on November 15th for the 200th episode and for the DLN Game Fest. And if you'd like to you'd like to get some DLN swag, we also have a store that you can check out by going to dlnstore.com. There are stickers, hoodies, mugs, t-shirts, and so much more. We're actually going to be adding a lot more merch coming soon and a variety of different things. And I'm actually making some new custom designs that I just kind of wanted to make for fun. And I'm doing that in the Because Collection. And that is a section where when you go there, it'll say, why are these items collected together? Uh, because. That's why. So if you want to check it out, go to dlnstore.com to check out all the awesome stuff available in the store. Up first in the show this week, we're going to be talking about Fedora because Fedora 33 has been released and I am super excited to talk about it because they have, we talked about it previously with the, with the beta release, but also I want to talk about it because it's just really cool that they have switched to ButterFS and their code name for this particular release is ButterF33. That's not actually true because they don't do code names anymore, but they should bring it back because, you know, I miss Beefy Miracle because uh, code, Fedora's code names were always fun. Uh, what was the other one with like uh, Schrodinger's something? I don't know if Schrodinger's cat, but something like that. Anyway, uh, this is a really cool release with a potentially good uh, code name, unlike the latest Ubuntu code name, which if you haven't noticed that if you don't know, the, tw- the 21.04 is going to be named the Hearsuit Hippo. If you don't know what that means, hearsuit means that it's covered with hair. Okay, you could have had hipster hamster, but you chose hearsuit hippo. All right then. Anyway, moving on. So Fedora 33 is using the 5.8 Linux kernel. It's going to be using GNOME 3.38 for the workstation release. And if you're not familiar, we did talk about the GNOME 3.38 in a previous episode. So you want to know the full details of what's coming, what came in that version, uh, you'll have that. But also, just to be real quick, I want to do like a highlights. So, for example, the new Tor application is really nice way to get uh, getting started with GNOME and learning how it works because it's like a feature Tor sort of stuff. And it's very nice that they added GNOME Tor to uh, GNOME in general. Just great idea. Love that. Also, Boxes now allows for editing virtual machines, libvirt, uh, XML directly. Early OOM is enabled by default on KDE Plasma Spin, improves system responsiveness on low memory machines, and they've also switched the default command line editor to GNU's Nano. And some people might consider getting stuck in Vim like a rite of passage, but I am really happy that they decided to change this to Nano because I think Nano is a fine editor for command line stuff. It's not the most powerful, but it gets the job done. And for beginners, that's what it needs to be done. You know, So I'm really happy that they did that. Also, support for the network time security or NTS authentication has been added. It, DXVK is now the default Wine3D uh, backend on Vulkan cap- comp- uh, compatible hardware, which is really cool. The Fedora workstation now features an animated background based on the time of day, which is a nice uh, polish there. Uh, ships with Thermal D by default for better thermal management and peak performance on Intel processors. This is the first release to use ButterFS by default, and ButterFS has a lot of cool features that are not necessarily available in this particular release, but they will be adding in the future, which I'm super excited about. 
So ButterFS has data integrity, compression, multiple device support, and so much more, including snapshotting and transactional updates and that sort of stuff. Very, very cool. And this is available for all desktop editions uh, of Fedora. Uh, on some, uh, Only some basic features, like I said, are enabled right now. But there will be a lot because they want to you know, make sure that they're all ready to go before they just release them all out. They want to have like a lot of testing on it to make, make sure everything is ready to go when they activate the new features. So I respect that decision to go that way. And first release of the Fedora IoT edition has been done. This is the IoT or Internet of Things edition of Fedora. It comes with Platform Abstraction for Security or Parsec. Now, the way that they spell this or do the capitalization is absolutely so they could just have it be Parsec as an acronym. But, you know, fair enough there. Uh, an open source initiative to provide a common API to hardware security and cryptographic service in a platform agnostic environment. That's what the uh, Parsec thing system is for. Uh, it's also uh, got you know some pretty cool things like the, uh, this is the IoT, by the way, just a reminder. It has cryptographic services, but also have safe updates and rollbacks using the OS tree technology, which is very, very cool. And also just a quick quote from the project leader of Fedora, Matthew Miller. He says that at the heart of Fedora, we aim to deliver a free, innovative, open source platform for hardware, clouds, and containers that is easy to use no matter where you're starting. Fedora 33 delivers on that promise with updates targeted at both a new and advanced user while keeping new and exciting use cases in mind like edge computing and IoT for continued innovation. And I am super excited about Fedora 33. I'm actually going to be testing it uh, very soon. I've actually already been testing it, but because of the move, I had to kind of put it off a little bit and, you know, do the move. But I am uh, so excited to get back into that. Uh, uh, Ryan from the Destination Linux podcast with me has already been using Fedora with the workstation version with GNOME, and I'll be using the KDE spin. So I'll let you know about what, you know, in the future, what my experience is with that. I am super excited about that, and I'm super excited about the future of Fedora with all the cool stuff they're doing, not only just Fedora 33, but also the Lenovo deal and their partnership with them and all the other stuff they're doing. I'm super excited. So if you'd like to learn more about Fedora, I'll have a link in the show notes below for the latest release of Fedora 33. Up next in the show is some interesting news related to the YouTube DL project and that it has been taken down by a DMCA uh, complaint by the RIAA to GitHub. So the YouTube DL was removed from GitHub after a DMCA notice by the RIAA or the Recording Industry Association of America and they they took it down as well as all the forks of it. So they GitHub immediately removed the repositories and 17 forks. And this is basically GitHub's decision. Like a lot of people are attacking GitHub for this. And I think it's kind of like a nuance there because GitHub is trying to cover their own tracks because if they get sued for not taking it down, then that could be a problem for all the other projects that are on GitHub. So I don't think that that's a good idea. Like it makes sense why they would do it. It's not ideal that they would take it down, but it, it kind of does make sense. Uh, but at the same time, this is a ridiculous thing that they're doing because they're attacking a tool where DMCAs are usually used for distribution of media, not a tool to uh, affect media or whatever, uh, because this is an open source piece of software and it doesn't really make sense. Uh, Producer Mark also mentioned that it kind of reminds him of the battles for the VCRs and how they had to fight the main, the companies that were trying to battle over the copyright and whatever, because you could record TV shows with VCRs back in the nineties and that sort of stuff. Uh, so 
that's an interesting uh, perspective and analogy because it does kind of fit similar to this this situation. But let's get to the the letter from the RIA and like the highlights about like what they talked about and the reason why they imply they said that it's a it needs to be taken down. So this is a quote, not my opinion. These are just words from the letter for uh, the takedown. They say, the RIA says, the clear purpose of this source code is to circumvent the technological protection measures used by authorized streaming services such as YouTube and reproduce and distribute music videos and sound recordings owned by our member companies without authorization for such use. We know that the source code is described on GitHub as a command line program to download videos from YouTube.com and a few more sites. Now, a quick note, that's not its purpose. The clear purpose implies that its only purpose is that. Obviously, it does a lot more than that, and it also supports thousands of websites. I don't know how many thousands, but like at least a thousand websites that YouTube DL supports. So it can't really be a clear purpose of this interpretation, even though they do go on to say some more, clarify some other things, but we'll get to that. So the next quote from the letter uh, for highlights anyway. Uh, RIA says that we also note that the source code prominently includes a sample uh, as sample uses of the source code, the downloading of copies of our members' copyrighted sound recordings and music videos as noted in Exhibit A here too. For example, as shown in Exhibit A, the source code expressly suggests its use to copy and distribute the following copyrighted works owned by our member companies. And it lists off three songs by Icona Pop, Justin Timberlake and Taylor Swift. And uh, fair enough, uh, that's a mistake on YouTube DL's part for listing those things because there's no reason to have listed those in terms of how to use YouTube DL. But up next in the highlights from the letter, RIA says, Indeed, the comments in the YouTube DL source code make clear that the source code was designed and is marketed for the purpose of circumventing YouTube's technological measures to enable unauthorized access to our members' copyrighted works. This is not necessarily clear. It creates a muddied water situation where the fact that that was in the source code or in the documentation is a problem and creates an issue. If they hadn't done that, it'd have been a lot harder for the RIA to attack them. So yeah, that is unfortunate. Uh, but there are, you know, it's obviously, there are also clear cases where it's not just for that and its purpose is not for the circumventing of YouTube technology, especially since they support so many websites. However, if they were not called YouTube DL, it'd be a lot harder to take it down as well because it wouldn't have the word YouTube in it. But anyway, so just to be clear, this takedown only affects GitHub. It doesn't. It only affects their source code repository. It doesn't affect the ability to download this thing. So there's no real need to actually fork it anyway, unless you were forking it for adding, you know, your own uh, features and stuff like that for the actual code. But in terms of like people are worrying about or thinking about maybe YouTube DL will be forked and a new a new project will be started for this because of all this. And that's not even necessary because YouTube uh, DL's project. The website for it, or YouTube-D or YT-DL.org, is still available, and you can still download the package from it. You can also get the package from any repository, from whatever distro you use, and that sort of stuff. And it's just, it's just kind of interesting. But also, there's a lot of stuff that's been happening uh, since this takedown has happened. There's been interviews with former maintainers of the project. There's also been some uh, follow-ups with updates from GitHub themselves uh, from their. Uh, their GitHub policy Twitter account and that sort of thing. 
But it is kind of interesting because uh, last year, RIA got five YouTube downloaders removed from Google search. So it's not like this is the first time they've tried to do this. Uh, but let's get to the uh, quotes from the interview with the previous maintainer of YouTube DL. Uh, he currently is not the maintainer, but, you know, was. So I'm just going to do so quotes. The first thing he says, this name is Philip, by the way. Uh, Philip says that YouTube-DL is very viable for many purposes. It enables video playback on devices where the web interface is not suitable. It allows for playback for disabled users. It powers research projects which analyze videos. And you can just watch videos when there may be no, no stable internet connection. Because uh, to clear, this is uh, out of quote right now, there's a an issue where people who have a very low speed internet or, uncons- or inconsistent internet, they can't really watch stuff on YouTube because YouTube's buffering system is kind of weird in the sense that you can't just start this, the, the video and play it and let it buffer so you can then watch the whole thing. But for some reason, YouTube decided to not allow that to happen. So you have to actually watch it. Then it will buffer. And then it'll stop for a certain period about and then wait for you to get to that part and start buffering again. So if your connection is not fast or inconsistent, that buffer structure that YouTube made is kind of a problem. So YouTube DL is a solution for those people who have those situations. So I think it's actually very valuable for them to have that kind of feature. So anyway, back to the quotes. So Philip says, this should be unequivocally allowed and even supported for the good of society while keeping the ability of content producers to benefit from their creations. In my time as maintainer, I declined numerous requests to support piracy sites and DRM-protected content. I cannot speak for the project in the last years, but from what I've seen, the policy has remained. GitHub is in no way to blame. They host the project for free, and we should thank them for that. Uh, He also goes on to say, copyright law is always a balance between creators and society. When it comes to being able to watch videos, no matter the device or or internet connection, and doing so for non-commercial purposes, the balance we should strive for seems clear to me. It should allow YouTube DL. And I agree with that. There is a lot of benefit to YouTube DL, and there's also not that much problematic issues there, especially with the whole the inconsistent connections and low speed connections and that sort of stuff. So there's a lot of people who didn't know that YouTube DL even existed. And now that this huge, you know, kerfuffle or whatever happened because of this takedown, a lot more people are aware of it. And since you can't actually take it down because one, it can be on any other site. They can even put it on their own site for their own uh, repo if they wanted to set up their own Git repository, like a, their own GitLab instance or Git T instance or whatever. You can't force them to take it down there. You can only scare GitHub and maybe other companies that have the same situation as GitHub. But if they hosted it themselves, they're essentially eliminating anything you can do. So that the fact that they did this whole takedown in the first place is just... Just the same ridiculous uh, Napster approach that they did where they attacked Napster and then because of that, the piracy rate just skyrocketed. So this is not going to solve anything. In fact, it's just getting more attention to the project that you don't want people to use. So good job there, buddy. Anyway, getting back to the uh, notes. So 
There's actually a really interesting that happened also like a couple days ago. The CEO of GitHub has recently tried to contact the YouTube DL team in order to get them to back up. So that's a very interesting uh, you know, update to that topic, as well as uh, he went into the IRC channel to talk to them and even used Twitter to prove that that's the right person and that kind of, th- kind of thing. So it's very interesting to see that GitHub is in, in interested in getting it back up, but they have to make adjustments to the code so that it can be put it back up. And they didn't say exactly what needs to be taken out or whatever. But of course, the comments about the music videos and stuff like that would have to be taken out for sure. Uh, maybe there'd probably be a little bit more as well, just because I assume so. But we'll see. So that's the current state of the DMCA takedown for YouTube DL that I'm aware of. If there's any updates, I'll keep you up to date in the future. And if there's if you st- if you want to download the, the program, you still can because there's no restriction whatsoever in doing so, because well, that's how it works. <laughs> anyway, if you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have links in the show notes below for more information on this pointless takedown. Up next in the show is a new smartphone that's been announced by the FX Tech team and this is the Pro One X smartphone and it comes with Lineage OS and Ubuntu Touch as an option. And this is really cool because this is in partnership with XDA, the XDA developers in building a this this cell phone because this is kind of like the first time XDA has been involved in creating a smartphone. And if you're not familiar, XDA is a group of developers and hackers and ROMers and people like that who make it like a, like a homebrew system so you can flash your uh, Android devices and put Lineage OS on it or other things on your phones and that kind of thing. And there's a lot of cool, and also a lot of the stuff that Lineage OS uses some, you know, tips and thing, tips and tricks from XDA to get this to be done. So that's pretty cool. And XDA has been around for years. So it's probably the biggest, you know, biggest website for that kind of thing, period. Uh, so this is to quote from the uh, campaign from Indiegogo. The uh, FX Tech team says, the smartphone that gives you control, control over your data, control over your privacy, and the choice over your software. For the first time, a high-spec smartphone running Lineage OS or Ubuntu Touch OS out of the box. So this is actually a newer version sort of to the Pro 1, which was uh, was previously released uh, from the FX Tech team. However, there are some kind of weird issues on their website because it says you can buy now the Pro 1, and also it says you can pre-order the Pro 1, so that's confusing, so I'm not sure if it is out or not, but there's that. So this is kind of uh, turning this Pro 1 into a new version, which has modified specs. There's actually more RAM in this version versus the regular Pro Pro 1. So the Pro 1 had 6 gigs of RAM. This has 8 gigs of RAM and some other stuff, uh, other differences. Uh, But this comes with pre-installation options, which include Lineage OS, Ubuntu Touch, and Android. They also say that more are coming, but I'm not sure what they mean because there's a interesting frequently asked questions on their campaign that kind of makes it confusing but we'll get to that in a second so uh, they're probably talking about like you know selfish or whatever because selfish is also on pro one so it might be that but we'll see uh, but anyway 
the quote the XDA team on the Ubuntu Touch option, the XDA team says that beyond just LineageOS, there's a large community of Ubuntu users who've always dreamed of having a smartphone running Ubuntu Touch, and the Pro One X is the first Qualcomm-powered smartphone to run Ubuntu Touch. Not only that, we'll also, we've also managed to get the HDMI out feature working, so you can plug an HDMI cable in and connect it to the big screen and use a display as a trackpad, which is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. So the specs about this phone are really interesting. So it's got an unlocked bootloader. Uh, it's got a um, this it's a blue housing of the, of the 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 device, and they call it a special edition sapphire blue. Uh, the full landscape physical keyboard is available on this, which is very cool. So again. It's a phone that has a, a built-in physical keyboard. It slides out from the bottom. It's also backlit. It has multiple options, so you can have like uh, QWERTY, AZERTY, uh, QWERTS, Scandinavian layout as well. So those many many options for depending on where you are in the world and that kind of thing when you order it. It also has a, a 2160 by 1080 Full HD Plus display, which is a 5.9 inch. 5.99 inch dual curve AMOLED touchscreen with Gorilla Glass. It has a Snapdragon Qualcomm uh, from Qualcomm the 835 CPU Snapdragon. It has uh, two options for storage: 128 gigabyte and 256 gigabyte, and is expandable up to two terabytes using a micro SD card. So that's very cool that it has a micro SD card because a lot of phones these days don't have that. So it's always nice to see when they do. It has support for Wi-Fi 5 and uh, Bluetooth 5 and that sort of stuff. So I think it has up to uh, a- AX for Wi-Fi, uh, maybe AC. Uh, cameras, uh, two, there's two different cameras. Well, technically, there's two different cameras on the back, and there's also one on the front. So there's an 8-megapixel front camera, and then there's a two-back uh, system where it has a 12-megapixel and a 5-megapixel. It has support for NFC. It's got a fingerprint scanner. It's got USB Type-C which has, like I said, the HDMI out is working with that USB Type-C. And uh, it also has an headphone audio jack, or aka the Freedom Jack or the Courage Jack, because a lot of phones don't have that either these days, so that's very weird. But I'm really happy to see that this does. Uh, 3200 milliamp hour battery is available. They say that it ranges for 10-hour talk time, 480-hour standby time, and uh, also includes quick charge technology for the battery. It has a dual SIM card tray, which it's got like a lot of great cool specs in here as far as features and compatibility and stuff like that. Now, one thing they don't have is the, the battery, while it is a nice size battery and it does have the quick charge technology, it's, it is not a removable battery, so there is that kind of, a, of an issue. But for the most part, it's a pretty cool looking phone. Uh, the retail price for this is $899, but the, the Indiegogo price starts at $649 because they actually had some other tiers that were even cheaper, but those are all sold out, so you can't get those anyway. Right now, the cheapest you can get is $649, and they say it's expected to ship to backers in March 2021. Now, there is something that's kind of interesting in the way that this is working because well, there's a quote from their frequently asked questions. Like earlier, I talked about how it was kind of confusing when they say more are coming, because on XDA they say that there's not going to be, you know, after this campaign's over, you won't be able to purchase it. So I, I looked into like, what does that mean? 
Uh, maybe that just means the XDA won't be, you know, you won't be able to get a discount from XDA or whatever. Because I think there's also a discount if you go through the XDA link. I'll have links in the show notes for the XDA announcement as well as the Indiegogo campaign and that stuff. So you can kind of, you know, find out if you can get that discount or whatever. Uh, but it says on the frequently asked questions for the Indiegogo campaign, will the Pro 1X be available after the campaign? We are currently intent. We we are currently intending to have the Pro X One or Pro One X available only during the campaign as a part of a limited run. So it's kind of weird because, in one hand, they're saying that more OSs are coming. On the other hand, they're saying, but they're not. You can't buy it anymore once the campaign's over. And then again, on the other hand. It says that their retail price is $899, but there's not going to be a retail price because there's not going to be a retail device to purchase because you can only purchase through the campaign. So that's very confusing. I don't know what all that means, uh, but I just wanted to make it clear that that is kind of there. Uh, So if you are interested in this, you will need to get it on the campaign. Uh, It's already been like 400% backed, so it's definitely available if you want to get it. Uh, But it is kind of weird that they're doing it where it's only on the campaign, but I don't know. Maybe they're going to change their intentions in the future. Who knows? If you're wanting to learn more about this, I'll have links to the XDA announcement as well as the FX tech announcement and the Indiegogo campaign as well. If you'd like to learn more and potentially purchase one, you know, because you only have whatever left, you know, whatever, how many days, 40 something days left. There you go. So links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new app platform service, which is a solution to build modern cloud-native apps. With App Platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites quickly and easily. Simply point to your GitHub repository and let the App Platform do all the heavy lifting. It has support for Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, and Docker. DigitalOcean runs their app platform on their own infrastructure, so your costs are significantly lower than with other products. And this app platform, using their services with DigitalOcean Kubernetes, providing a smoother migration path so if you can take more control of your infrastructure setup. And as a listener of This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free, actually better than free, because with DigitalOcean, they're giving you $100 free credit to use their app platform service as well as the other services if you want to by going to do.co slash DLN. Again, get started by going to do.co slash DLN to get that $100 free credit for DigitalOcean's new app platform service. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, AMD has announced two big things that are happening. And first of all, let's talk about the Radeon RX 6000 series. So Lisa Sue presented the Radeon RX 6000 Big Big Navi series powered by AMD's RDNA 2 architecture featuring 80 enhanced compute units, 128 megabytes of AMD Infinity Cache, and 16 gigabytes of GDR6 memory. Now, I'm not going to go into super details on these this stuff because that's actually not my forte in terms of, you know, I'm not much, I'm mostly a software person, not really a hardware person, though I am getting more into the hardware space uh, thanks to the podcast Hardware Addicts that I'm a part of. And speaking of which, there the this particular topic will be going in much more in-depth 
in that ep- in that in the next episode for hardware addicts. So be sure to check that out and subscribe. I'll have a link in the show notes below if you want to check out more details where Ryan and Wendy will cover all the big hardware aspects of it because that's not really my thing. So it makes sense to just, you know, the hardware show talks about the really in-depth part of the hardware. I'm just talking about the cool stuff and also the Linux support. So there's also going to be Linux support in this. It's been under development, under development since the middle of the year. And there's initial support for Linux with the Linux kernel 5.9 and Mesa 20.2, which is fantastic. Now, there are some issues, though, because with 5.9, it means that Ubuntu and several other distributions will not have support because they're using 5.8 and it will require a manual upgrade. However, speaking of Fedora 33 earlier in the show, Fedora Fedora Workstation 33 will have Linux 5.9 as a stable release update. So that is very cool. One of the cool things about Fedora is they do update the the kernel and a bunch of other stuff, you know, very quickly. So I'm a big fan of that part. But anyway, it also requires the LLVM 11.0 or higher for the GFX 10.3 backend target. It also support or requires uh, Linux firmware from the binary microcode files needed for the GPU initialization. I'm not sure which distributions have that already or not, so there's that. But it does seem like there's going to be a lot of updates for some distributions to be able to support it. Unlike the previous situation where they had the there was like a motherboard support issue where some distributions didn't have support for the last generation, uh, you know, big graphics card and big CPUs and stuff because of uh, some other issues with the motherboard and that kind of thing. But that doesn't seem to be the case. There will be some support for some distros, though most distros might have to wait until spring of 2020, like with Ubuntu 21.04, which should have some out-of-the-box support by then. But unfortunately, 20.10 will not because it is based on 5.8. Linux kernel. And if you do want to get support for it, you have to manually update it to 5.9 and etc. So that may or may not be a worthwhile option, but if you want to try that, there you go. And also I'll give you a quick note. There's actually three different announcements for the 6000 series. Uh, in order of performance, we're going to talk about the RX uh, 6800 6, or 6800. This is a 25 to 250 watt graphics card intended for entry level 4K performance. And then it goes up bigger and bigger as you go. So there's the 6800 XT. And that's actually going to be costing $649 versus the 6800, which will be $579. Then there's the Big Beast, which is the Radeon RX 6900 XT, which will launch in uh, December 8th. And that'll be $999, so almost $1,000 to get that card, which is very interesting. There's a lot of cool stuff about this that I, I do want to talk about, like the size of the card is actually interesting compared to like the gigantic card that NVIDIA dropped and that kind of stuff. But I don't really know that much about it, so I'm just going to just hand it off to the Hardware Addicts team, where I am technically a part of that team, but I also i am there for dad jokes. And uh, color commentary, I guess. I don't know. But really, the reason I'm on that show is because I am a, I am, I want to be a hard radic. And a great way to do that is to just dive in super deep and listen to that show. And in my case, participate in that show. And if you want to join with me to become a hardware addict, then check out hardwareaddicts.org. And I'll have a link to all of it in the show notes below. 
So there you go. So AMD's 6000 series looks really awesome, and I can't wait to eventually get it once Ryan decides that he wants to upgrade in the future again because, well, there's that. <laughs> but anyway, let's talk about the next AMD uh, topic, and that is AMD acquiring Xilinx. So in a previous episode, we talked about the potential that AMD might be acquiring Xilinx. And now we have the announcement that it is official. AMD is acquiring a Xilinx for $35 billion. So the structure will be interesting because the ownership will be 74% AMD with 26% Xilinx. So it's not going to be a complete full buyout merger uh, but that's, you know, it's also really how interesting how they're going to be uh, transitioning people from Xilinx into AMD's uh, structure and that kind of thing. So Dr. Lisa Su, the, a the AMD CEO and president, will lead the, com the combined company as CEO. And Victor Ping, the CEO of Xilinx, will join AMD as the president responsible for Xilinx business and strategic growth initiatives. So they're basically kind of combining the two, but also keeping it separate. So what works keeps working, but also having the resources and the engineering prowess of AMD being included as well sounds really, really cool. And I'm super excited to see what happens with this merger or acquisition in this case. And to see, because I think there's a lot of potential for the FP, uh, FPGA aspects of Xilinx to be controlled by AMD or not necessarily controlled, but you know that, you know what I mean? In terms of like, AMD's been such a game changer recently in the past few years with the x86 architecture. So for them to be able to put that kind of stuff towards the FPGAs and there's so much potential, I am super excited. So uh, Dr. Sue in a statement, here's a quote from, from her. She says that our acquisition of Xilinx marks the next leg in our journey to establish AMD as the industry's high-performance computing leader and partner of choice for the largest and most in important technology companies in the world. So uh, this is this is really, really, really interesting. Uh, I can't wait to see what happens. So, but, but quick details: the acquisition is subject to approval still, you know, because there's technically the the board of directors. Actually, for both Xilinx and AMD, unanimously approved this uh, acquisition, which is you know kind of unheard of in you know any kind of business acquisition and whatever. It's very rare that that happens, but uh, this was completely uh, unanimously. And they, but there is a little bit of an issue because this still needs the shareholders of both AMD and Xilinx to approve it, and also regulatory approvals and other customary closing conditions and that sort of stuff. So the deal is expected to close by the end of 2021. So while it was unanimously decided by the board of directors for both AMD and Xilinx, there's still quite a bit of red tape to get through. So we'll see what happens there. And if you're not familiar, let's talk about what you know Xilinx is and that sort of stuff. So in comparison, AMD is focused on high-performance CPUs and GPUs for the PC and data center servers, and also some system-on-a-chip stuff for game consoles and notebooks. Uh, but Xilinx is focused on high-performance FPGAs. They actually invented FPGAs, for those who don't know, and also system-on-a-chips for data centers, including SmartNICs, uh, communication, automotive, industrial, aerospace, defense markets, and so much more, just tons of stuff. And it has the first satellite focused chips with like the 20 nanometer process that's rated for use in space, which is 
very cool. Uh, designed to handle radiation and the rigors of launch using a thick ceramic packaging. So that's what uh, Xilinx has. So they're very innovative in many different types of areas. Uh, and also to another another comment from Dr. Sue, she says that we're coming at it from the point of strength. Both companies have very strong power portfolios today. As we bring the companies together, we'll be able to take advantage of a lot of technology synergy. I mean, that's a lot of buzzwords right there. But I, I do think that there's a like basically in the past years, it was interesting because Xilinx was going to try to purchase AMD many years ago, and now it's flipped. So the AMD is purchasing Xilinx. And I think it's really cool that this is happening now because AMD has just completely transitioned into from a, a, a company that you want to be good to a company that is just dominating in so many awesome ways. And their, their CPU market, they're just dominating the CPU market. And the GPU, they're very, very close to knocking off NVIDIA from that top ledge of that pedestal and that kind of thing. So I am super excited about this. I, I just can't wait to see what happens. We will have to wait quite a while, but I can't wait to see what happens because uh, this essentially means that this co- this combined semiconductor giant will have like 13,000 engineers and like 2.7 billion in annual research and development investment and stuff like that so that they can innovate in so many ways that I, I just can't wait to see what they do. And the last quote I want to give you is again from uh, Dr. Lisa Sue. By combining our world-class engineering teams and deep domain expertise, we will create an industry leader with the vision, talent, and talent and scale to define the future of high-performance computing. That's a great way to end it right there. So if you want to learn more, I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show is some more hardware news, and this time from the company Sci5. So Sci5 makes a variety of different development boards and stuff like that based on RISC-V. And this is a really interesting thing. So Sci5 launched the Hi5 Unleashed years ago, and it was one of the first RISC-V development boards, embedded focused and stuff like that. But its price was not really good for enthusiasts or hobbyists because it was $1,000 just to get the board. Now they have released a new board. This is they, They've announced the Sci5 Freedom U740-powered High Five Unmatched Mini ITX Motherboard. So it's the High Five Unmatched in this case. They claim it's the world's fastest native RISC-V development platform. Comes with a complete development environment called the Freedom US or the Freedom U SDK. Allows developers to create RISC-V based applications from bare metal to Linux based systems, including U-Boot support. And it also they also say um, the benefits related to the RISC-V being uh, open source, because if you're not aware, RISC-V is an open source architecture in basically every way. So RISC-V is a super interesting architecture to me, and I want many as many companies as possible to push towards RISC-V because I, I think there's a ton of value in this architecture and potential, and the more companies and the more products being used, the cheaper they will become due to the, you know, the less it require it would take to, you know, purchase the amount of like, you know, basically if you're not aware, bulk pricing, the more you purchase as a, a manufacturer, the cheaper it is to to buy them because they can, you know, justify the cost of having to make them in a batch easier than in this case. So that's one of the reasons why risk five is more expensive than say, for example, ARM or whatever, because of that. And anyway, the CTO and co-founder of Sci-Fi, Dr. Yun-Sup Lee, 
uh, sorry, I mispronounced your name probably. I apologize. Uh, he's, in this quote, he says, Risk V specifications are free and open source specifications. In other words, the other competitors have something called an architecture li architectural license. And you have to pay fees to get access to the architecture license to build your own cores. So one way to think about Risk V is that everyone gets a free architecture license. So exactly, that's very cool. So let's talk about the particular... Uh, board in this case, the Hi5 Unmatched board. It's a mini ITX board. This processor is the Sci-Fi Freedom FU740. It's a system on a chip. It has four U74MC cores and one S7 embedded core, two megabytes of L2 cache, eight gigabytes of DDR4 memory, 32 megabytes of SPI flash memory, four USB 3.2 Gen 1 ports, one PCI Express 16 slot operating at a PCIe Gen 3 X8. It also has one PCIe Gen 3 slot. It has uh, four, apparently, four MVME M.2 2280 slots. And also it has an M.2 slot for Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, micro SD card slot, gigabit Ethernet, and a bunch more. This is a really interesting product because it's it's the... A very powerful RISC-V uh, motherboard that's mini-ITX is very interesting to me. Now, the price is not super cheap or anything, but it's a lot cheaper than the previous edition of the Hi5 Unleashed. So the Hi5 Unleashed was, base, was I think, was yeah, $999. Now, this particular one is $665, so that's $334 less than the former version, so that is very, very nice to see. It's still kind of expensive, but it's now in a reasonable, enthusiast, hobbyist-level price that some people might want to be able to get, and I think that that is very, very cool. So if you'd like to learn more about RISC-V or Sci-Fi's latest motherboard, I'll have links in the show notes below. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that I use and trust, and you can go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started with your free account. So password managers are a great way to have balance of security and convenience when using uh, websites or online accounts in general, and they're very, very cool because the, the biggest benefit is the convenience. So it'll it, Bitwarden works across your devices, whether it's mobile, desktop, browser plugins, or even the command line. It also has auto-filling of passwords, so you don't have to type the passwords in yourself. It has a password generator, so you don't have to make up the passwords. It can just generate it for you with uh, various different uh, configurations of how strong you want the password to be and all that sort of stuff. And this is all important because you want to have the convenience because you also need to have great security. And with websites these days, they pretty much all ask you to create an account, and that's fine for the most part, but people tend to use the same password for different accounts and different websites, and that is not good best good practice for in terms of security. You want to create a password for each website you go to and each account you make on each website, and that gets becomes a lot of the stuff to deal with, so you want to have a way to keep track of all that and to make it convenient, and that is where Bitwarden comes in. So Bitwarden is the password manager that I use, like I said, and in addition to just being a really great convenience, it also is 100% open source software, which is fantastic, and I just can't talk about how awesome that is. I can't talk about that you know, too much because it is so good. It also has the ability to self-host it if you want to, and it has, the, it has security audits that they do periodically to ensure that their code is as best as it possibly can be. So 
Go to bitwarden.com slash dealing and get started for free. But if you're like me, you want to show your support for this software and their support for the community of creating an open source password manager, and you want to go to bitwarden.com slash DLN and sign up for their premium edition because that premium edition only starts at $10 a year. That's right, just $10 a year and you get one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, and Duo, and many, many more things that are just fantastic. So again, get started by going to bitwarden.com slash DLN and get your password manager that you can trust and just you know have the fantasticness of an open source password manager at your disposal. Thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Up next in the show is a very interesting topic from the Snap team, and that is that Snap packages are getting a speed boost. So Snaps are self-contained applications if you're not aware, and sometimes there's some noticeable performance penalties issues with that structure, and they have done some in, some significant effort and time to get a new compression algorithm for Snaps, and they say it offers two to three times improvement in application startup times, which will be very nice to hear for a lot of people whose biggest complaint of Snaps is that it the first time you load it, it takes kind of a while to load them. That seems to be no longer the case. Well, going forward, because this is kind of like the first time they've implemented it, and they still need to do improvements and whatever. But and I don't think all all snaps have the support yet. I think they have to be compressed with again with those the new structure. So we'll see. I don't know how long that'll take, but just to know it is getting a speed boost, which is very cool. So by default, snaps are packaged as compressed read-only SquashFS file system using the XZ algorithm, which is a high level of compression and requires more CPU to decompress for usage. Now, they're going to be doing compression is going to be using the LZO compression algorithm. This has less compression, but is faster to decompressing as well. So it offers the highest level of compatibility over a number of different use cases. So they did some testing with the Chromium browser, and they said that it previously would uh, have the XZ created a 150 megabyte snap, where the LZO creates a 250 megabyte snap. So it's a larger it's a larger snap file, but also it is able to load much faster because of that, so it's not compressing so much. They also said that they tested on a wide range of systems from 2015 to 2020 laptop models, and they said that the LZO compression uh, offered 40 to 74% cold startup improvements over the XZ compression. On their Kubuntu 1804 test system, the LZO snap had near identical startup speed from the uh, the basically the deb file essentially on their uh, Fedora 32 workstation the LZO compressed snap cold startup was faster than the RPM package by 33% they say which is roughly about a 5 second difference and uh, they say the hot startup performance was largely independent of packaging format selection well, work is underway to find the optimal way to introduce and roll out this sim- the changes for all the other snaps. But so far, it's basically just the Chromium snap that has been doing the testing that's available to see uh, how fast it starts up if you want to try that out. Uh, but this is really, really interesting. And they also said that work is continuing to provide a wide range of additional improvements and optimizations for snaps and that sort of stuff. So for those who had an issue with the snaps, the you know loading much like much slower than it you would prefer uh, that does seem to be something that they are working on and have made a lot of progress in that sense with this new uh, compression algorithm structure with the LZO so let me know what you think in the comments below about you know test the chromium let me know if that's actually improved for you or not and compare it to the you know default repo version whatever in your browser in your uh, distribution of choice 
And I'm very curious to see what your results would be on this particular thing as well. So uh, I'll have links to the, the article from the Ubuntu website in the show notes below. But yeah, if you do want to test it, let me know what you think about it and what your results are in the comments. Up next in the show is a topic that is pretty interesting, and that is related to the potential or whether or not the X server has been abandoned or is being abandoned or whatever. So the last major release of the Xorg or the X.org server was in May 2018. So they're still getting commits and stuff like that, but it has seemed to dropped a lot in recent years in terms of how often it's being worked on. So the uh, Xorg server development has hit a nearly two decade low, but I mean, mostly because you know they're transitioning to Wayland and that sort of stuff. But you know Wayland is not really there yet, so it kind of seems like the Xorg uh, server is getting uh, kind of pushed away too soon. But that depends on your perspective of do you activate Wayland and deal with the issues and have everybody try to work on it as fast as possible to fix it or try to get all of it ready before you do it and then create a thing where some people just kind of stick with Xorg. I don't know. That's a debate for another time, but there you go. So Xorg had its high point in 2008 with 2,114 commits, and the commits have stagnated since 2015 at around 500 or so, dropping off in 2019 to 316. And a new release driven via continuous integration testing was proposed a year ago, but hasn't materialized yet. So there's that. Red Hat has stepped up to manage the Xorg server releases for some time, but interest is basically waning since, you know, Fedora Workstation is now using Wayland by default. RHEL is moving in that direction as well due to the, the success that the Wayland structure for the Workstation for Fedora is working and that kind of thing. So it is interesting to like, uh, Pharonix made an article about the potential abandonment of Xorg and there has been, you know, backing off of contributing to a new release by a lot of teams and that kind of thing over the years that the people who have managed this, this project has changed many, many times really like, actually I think about like seven or eight times, like the whole team has been taken, like changed and, you know, it's been taken over by other projects and that sort of stuff. And Red Hat only took it over, I think, a couple of years ago, that kind of thing. So there's, you know, it's not necessarily Red Hat's fault that this is happening. It's mostly like it's been kind of passed on into different teams, many, many, many cases. So I thought this was an interesting topic to cover because there has been a lot of talk about it during this past week or so. So there was a merge request this week for allowing atomic support in the F86 or XF86 video mode setting uh, DDX aspect. So it's it's actually like about partially restoring the support, uh, not enabled by default, but partially restoring after the atomic code was previously disabled over bugs. And uh, this is this is interesting because uh, Daniel Vetter of Intel's kernel graphics t- driver team and DRM uh, co-maintainer commented, DRM not meaning digital rights management, not that, the DRM for the kernel. Anyway, the main worry I have, this is Daniel speaking, the main worry I have is that the X server is abandonware without even regular releases from the main branch. That's why we had to blacklist X without someone caring. I think there's just largely downsides to enabling features. Veronix notes that then again, that coming from an Intel Linux developer isn't too surprising considering it's been more than six years since the last XF86 video Intel DDX release. 
So that's pretty interesting. So there are some discussions about it being abandoned and some people saying that it's not really abandoned. It also matters who you're, who is making those claims and that sort of stuff. But there's a quote from Adam Jackson, which is XORI's former release manager. I reacted on his blog to a headline asking if X was being abandoned. He says, as the person arguably most responsible for its care and feeding over the last 15 years or so, I feel like I have something to say about that. So here's the thing. X works extremely well for what it is. But what it is, is deeply flawed. There's no shame in that. It's 33 years old and still relevant. I wish more software worked so well on that kind of time frame, but using it to drive your display hardware and multiplex your input devices is choosing to make your life worse. It is, however, uniquely well suited to a very long life as an application compatibility layer. Though the code happens to implement an unfortunate specification, the code itself is quite well structured, easy to hack on, and not far off from being easily embeddable. So, is Xorg abandoned? To the extent that that means using it to actually control the display and not just keep X apps running, I'd say yes. But X server is more than X free 86. It's X Wayland, X Win, Zephyr, X VNC, X VFB. These are projects with real value that we should not give up on. A better way to say it is that we can finally abandon X free 86, but not the X server. So that is a very interesting per- perspective, you know, because we are transitioning away from like the whole reason Wayland even exists is to replace X. So it's not like it's shocking that this is happening because the entire purpose of the other display server protocol and etc. is to replace X. So it does make sense. I, I don't know if Wayland is really ready yet. In my opinion, it's not really ready. Some some of the applications I use are compatible with Wayland. Some are not. So it, you know, it's a balancing act right now, but hopefully at some point Wayland will take the position from X and we'll have everything ready to go. However, it does kind of matter that everything's ready to go before we do this transition, because we're in a modern time of computing. And if we replaced Wayland where most of the fe- a lot of features that people are used to with X are not there, it will basic it will have a, a bad taste in the mouth of many, many people because we need to have the support and not go back in time. So there is that. I don't know how far Waylon is in terms of being able to be feature parity with X, but I guess we'll see. So if you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have links to the Pharonix article through the blog post from the former maintainer and all sorts of stuff like that in the show notes below. Up next in the show is NixOS 20.09 has been released. If you're not familiar what NixOS is, then this is basically a distribution designed for DevOps, developers, and tinkerers. So NixOS is an operating system where everything from the kernel, the applications, the system packages, to configuration files, and all kinds of stuff like that are built by their own Nix package manager or Nix packages. Uh, so this is, and also it's kind of like, it's it's funny because there was a statement made by some people in the Nix community, how they say that they violently a- a- attack the file system structure and remove things. And I just thought it was funny how they described it. But uh, so essentially directories like slash bin slash sbin slash lib don't exist in NixOS because all the packages are stored in isolation from each other. There's no reason for those folders to exist. This can cause some pain points, for example, with scripts containing uh, absolute paths 
uh, like looking for Python 3 using the user slash bin slash Python 3, that kind of thing could create an issue. But Nix is also very up to date uh, with their package managing, and sometimes they're even faster than Arch's AUR and that sort of thing. So there are benefits to doing it in this structure. Now, to be clear, this is not a distribution for everyone. And I said that earlier, it's mostly for DevOps developers and tinkerers. It also is, it's a very specific structure that if you've never seen it before, it will take a little bit of getting used to because it does have a fairly big barrier to entry. But at the same time, it is very interesting as well. So NixOS allows you to define a desired system in a single configuration file, which makes your configuration easy to version control and share between systems, which is a really, really cool value of the system. Anytime your system configuration is changed, NixOS will create a new boot generation, and these generations will, will coexist without interfering with each other. So it's like a very simple way to roll back your system if something goes bad. And NixOS also has support for a lot of stuff, like 17 desktop managers, uh, 34 window managers available to choose from. And Nix packages uh, does not do root installation, which is another interesting thing about their structure. They do a they only install to their home system through like a read only mount. So packages are going through that read only, so there's no chance of malware injection because it never gets root privileges. And it, so it allows for only unprivileged users to do this installation of these packages. Now, there are other mechanisms that make that possible, uh, like, for example, GUIX, which is actually kind of a fork of Nix. And there's also another one, which is like app images technically do not use root installation. They don't even install anyway at all t- in technically, but they do use the home folder for storing configurations and stuff like that. So when you use an app images, an app image, it does sort of install, but at the same time doesn't install. So there's, you know, nuance there, but most, most uh, packaging systems do have a root structure requirement for installations. So it's interesting that Nix packages do not. So there's also sandbox builds. So if you, you can like, um, but like builds are done on their own kernel namespace, for example, or like Cheroots, and will only have access to their explicit dependencies at build time when you use their NixOS. So it's pretty, it's it's a very cool distribution, and it's very powerful for people who want to go into like super in-depth stuff with NixOS. So while it's not necessarily for everyone, there are a lot of cool things in, about NixOS that are valuable for those who want to try it out. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know, it's hard to describe NixOS because it's, it's not exactly, the way I'm going to describe it is not actually accurate exactly, but it's similar on the realm of Arch and uh, Gentoo and Crux. It's in that realm. So, but it's also very different from all of those at the same time. So hopefully that helps in describing it. Maybe, probably not. I heard what I said. So n- new options uh, where the latest release for the 20.09 are also pretty cool. There's a ton of new options. There's also improvements for enabling of system uh, 76 firmware support. There's also some improvements for um, the wooting keyboards, which is just fun uh, name for a keyboard structure. Anyway, also has improvements to enable OpenVPN uh, OpenVPN client during the init RD boot, which is a pretty cool feature for 
um, basically VPN structure. You can have your system automatically boot with a VPN, which will help prevent traffic leaks and that sort of stuff if you use a VPN often or most of the time, for example. And it also has new services like uh, Matrix Bot and different, uh, it has like support for folding at home client and that sort of stuff. That's what all the latest release. But if you're interested in checking it out, uh, I'll have links in the show notes for NixOS latest release, as well as just NixOS in general, if you want to learn more, because it is a pretty cool distribution. But again, keep in mind, it is not for everyone. And if you do want to tinker with it, it is a really cool one to do so. So links in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the Tuxedo channel the This Week in Linux podcast, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. Or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to the DLN store, which you can get there by going to dlnstore.com. This is a shirt that I designed to convey the message that whether or not you know that Linux is there, it probably is. That's why it has Tux blended into the background of the shirt. And we also have other ways to contribute without any cost to you by using our affiliate links. You can find links for places like Amazon, Private Internet Access, Humble Bundle, and many more by going to tuxdigital.com affiliates. And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts, as I'm a co-host of both of those shows on the Destination Linux network. And just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern, even when I move. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week. The show is a global show as well, so with people watching all around the world, which is amazing, I realize that saying Eastern time isn't that helpful for people. So if you're not in North America or, you know, that region of the world. So I provided a link, which is a time zone converter in the description and in the show notes to make it easier for you to know when the show is actually is in your time zone, especially with like the daylight savings time that is changing very soon that will create another confusion. But that time zone converter will make it easier as well. So anyway, there you go. And thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux good news.